Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. Okay, calling for a dope drip, 80-year-old male. He's got 500 TC fluid bolus in. His last pressure is 70 over uh, palp. Uh, he's got a heart rate of 100. He's an AFib with a big left bumble branch block. I'm intubated right now, and I'm just calling to see if I can get a dope drip going on them. Because we're going all the way from the university. And so you got an 80-year-old guy in AFib who's intubated, you said? Yeah, he uh, was agonal breathing when the medics arrived on scene, so they intubated him. His subheat is under like, I can't see anything as well because he's got a big left bundle branch block. All right. Um, he's, 70, he's 70 over palp. You said, what's his rate? His rate right now is 90, maybe. 90. Uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like he needs a dope drip. He's rate control. His rate's controlled, so I don't think that that's contributing to his, to his hypotension at this point. Right, because his rate's 90. That shouldn't be making him hypotensive if he's not uh, in RBR. Um, okay, hold on a second. I'll call you back. All right. PG base. Hi, this is PG number 43. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're still heading into the university. I started tasting him. I got a capture at 110 milliamps. He's a tasting at 80 beats per minute. He's still intubated. His last blood pressure was 62 over nothing, and I'm calling to see if I can hang a dope drip. But there's, so there's no reason to hang a dilt drip on this patient. The reason that you use diltiazem in that situation is to slow down his heart rate. So it gives no, it, dopamine. I want dopamine. Oh, I thought you said dilt drip. No, we don't carry dilt. I want yeah. dopamine. Yes, you can have a dopamine drip. Thank you. EMTs, techs, nurses, PAs, NPs, and doctors are all well-trained for varying jobs and levels of care in emergency medicine. One of the very few things that all providers are expected to do at the highest level, regardless of what license they hold, is communicate about patients with each other. Unfortunately, none of us are given enough training in EMT or paramedic school on how to do this. But the truth is, I didn't get much more help with this in my physician training either, or in my K-12 education. How we talk to each other is something that is free and can save lives. So, we sat down with the amazing EMS physician from Denver, Dr. Whitney Barrett, to talk about where we sometimes go wrong with communication and how we can do it better. Can we just start by talking about the three phases of EMS communication? Yeah, and so this is sort of how I think about our touch points, if you will, between the pre-hospital and the hospital in regards to patient care. And so the first one is medical direction, which we talk about in other segments as well. Um, The next piece is sort of pre-arrival notifications. And then the final piece is ED handoffs. And depending on the case that you're running or what your system is, there'll be different parts of this that are more or less important and different parts that are more or less routine, depending on what, what you're faced with that day. Each one of those is important for a different reason, um, but put together, they're super important for sort of what we're able to provide for our patients. Knowing the high-risk areas for communication errors in each category can protect you from making the mistakes that even the best medics in the world make. The first area is medical direction. Medical direction can be either through our protocols or for, through online medical direction. 
And in terms of exchange of information, it's mostly through that online medical direction uh, where we're dealing with the more complex decisions and challenging things that might be related to the patient that's right in front of you, especially if it's unique circumstances or out of your scope or not dealt with primarily in protocols. Can you give us some examples of some kind of challenging medical direction? Sure. So I think one of the biggest groups that falls into this is patients who refuse transport to the hospital for whatever reason, whether it's a good reason or a bad reason. If you have a patient in front of you that you think should go to the hospital and they just don't want to go, this type of medical direction that usually results in a, in a phone call to your through your online medical direction um, can be really important. Other examples or sort of termination of resuscitation is most protocols are going to require that you touch base with a physician before stopping resuscitative efforts. And then, you know, you start thinking about even less common events like a mass casualty incident or a big event that happens at a, at a gathering where you're looking for destination decisions or something else like that. You know, then we sort of transition into the the next phase, which would be your pre-arrival notifications. So for those patients that didn't refuse that are going to come to the hospital with you, this phase of EMS communication conveys the important information that's necessary for the emergency department to prepare for the patient that's coming in. The importance of that goes sort of without saying that you want to have the right resources there ready for you. I think there's not a medic out there that I haven't heard complain about bringing a critical patient someplace and the hospital just wasn't ready for them because that's uncomfortable. You've done, you've worked really hard. Um, you've done all the right things for your patient to get them to the hospital in the best condition possible. And then to not have the hospital ready is really sort of, it's a letdown. And so that phase of communication that's pre-arrival notification can be really, really important. Certainly most of those are very, very routine, but, uh, but can be super important. And then the the final piece, which you guys are spending a lot of time talking about as well, but that's that transfer of care of the patient from the pre-hospital team to the in-hospital team. And obviously, this should include the pertinent historical details, um, your assessment, interventions, things that you might have gathered from the scene that the in-hospital providers would never have any idea about if you didn't bring those up. And then also that sort of time for questions or clarifications as you're doing that handoff. But those are sort of the three main phases that I think about, and that's medical direction, pre-arrival notifications, and then the, the actual patient handoff. Yeah, and the patient handoff is so important. I mean, it's why we're spending so many segments on trying to highlight the what's important about this. And it just gives time for the physicians or the nurses or whoever is taking that handoff to ask questions and try to gain a little more insight about exactly what happened pre-hospitally. It's so important. There's so many questions that I have when we take that handoff. We've really emphasized here that every doctor should be present for the handoff. I think it's super important. Not every place does that. And if, and if where you're working doesn't do that, I, I, I still think it's important that some nurse, some tech, somebody is there to ask questions to try to clarify what had happened beforehand because that can kind of really frame the entire hospital care moving forward for that patient. Absolutely. And certainly you think of our intoxicated patients or otherwise incapacitated patients who won't be able to ever give us yeah. any sort of history. Um Pre-hospital providers are the only ones that yeah. will ever be able to provide any amount of information about what happened to this person. And so to miss that uh, seems like a major miss. So what are some strategies for communicating effectively during a medical direction call? 
There's a couple different pieces that I think help us, certainly don't keep us totally out of trouble, but can go a long ways. One of those is to have a question and state it clearly. In a different segment, we talk about sort of the anatomy of a biophone call and things like that. But uh, I think being very clear about what it is you're calling for and and making sure just the simple pronunciation of what it is that you're looking for can actually go a really long ways. Probably like as I'm making that phone call, I'm spiking an epi drip and starting a line. That's all like if I do all those things at once, super helpful, right? Good question. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and there's there's uh, actually some really interesting papers and data out there about our ability to multitask. And essentially, while we talk about multitasking and and shamefully, it's even in like the milestones for physician uh, <laughs> grading physicians is like how well they do at multitasking. But essentially, we can't multi multitask. We can task switch, but we are unable to multitask. So the only times we're really able to multitask are when we're doing something that actually one of those tasks does not require any thought at all. And when you consider that people say that if you're driving and talking on the phone, that that's distracted driving and would be an example of how you can't multitask, you could imagine that providing critical patient care and talking on the phone or trying to communicate that critical patient care is something that's just not possible to happen at the same time. And you probably save time, actually, um, since we can't multitask, we can only task switch by just doing one task at a time. And so instead of thinking you can get your drip and your <laughs> and your IV and your tube with your with your phone into your ear and talking to the receiving provider chances are really good that you'll either make an error in one of those pieces or you'll be slowed down because what you have to do is you have to say something to the provider then start your IV then say something else to the provider and then move on to your epi drip and and you probably waste more time that way than if you just did one thing at a time and then you realize you've made a medication error on your epi drip so just stop what you're doing and just make your communication hang up the phone, move on after that. I think there's another concept that we probably don't talk about a whole lot, but is certainly out there in other industries. And that's this idea of developing a shared mental model. And uh, for any physicians that are out there listening, um, it's one of the reasons why I feel really strongly that all emergency physicians should be required to spend some amount of time on an ambulance. The only way to really help yourself get that shared mental model when you're answering the phone in the hospital is to have been in that setting in some capacity. That being said, telephone communications with EMS and in-hospital providers are really unique because as the pre-hospital provider, you're looking at a patient and we forget about all of those extra things that we just absorb and take for granted as pieces of information, right? Like what the patient looks like, where you are in the city or in a home or whatever, um, the size of your patient, the outside factors, is it cold, is it hot, are you... Is there five flights of stairs that you have to take to just get out of where you are? Um, things like that aren't obvious to the person on the phone. 
And so thinking about how you provide information that will allow your listener to sort of get in your shared mental space so you guys can make good decisions about your patient care without having to go into all of the details about the wallpaper and things like that, right? It's um, it's providing those critical pieces that will communicate and help your listener sort of get in the same space so that you guys can understand one another about what's going on. Yeah. At the end of the day, you are the only link to the field for the people trying to help you. So recognize that your words describing that call matter. And then we've talked about it a bunch of times before, but hear back, read back, that sort of thing as you're talking about critical pieces of information. And then the last thing that I would put in here is to avoid passive listening and to avoid not listening. Um, I think all of us can find ourselves guilty of thinking about the next thing we're going to say rather than listening to what the person is saying to us. And uh, and that's a hard habit to get out of, but it's super, super important. You know, if you're calling, asking for a medication or asking for, you know, some other sort of intervention or something else, and you feel like you're going to have to do a real sales job on it, right? We suddenly find ourselves in a situation where we're not listening to what the, the other person has to say back to us to understand why they might be hesitant about what we're asking about or something like that. The flip side is obviously very important too if you're the provider in the hospital taking the phone call to really engage and listen to all of the details that are important there can be really critical. Yeah, or even to, if you're the paramedic in a system that – shows up after the fire department does or after an EMT does and you're trying to take the hand off from one of those. That was one of the biggest challenges when I was a paramedic was to actually listen to what they were saying to me and what they had seen beforehand. And that that goes from taking the hand off from the fire department, the EMT, when you show up on scene to giving the hand off to the physician and making sure the physician or you as a physician is actually listening to that. Yeah, basically all good communication skills you need to know, you learn from (laughs) (laughs) pre-hospital, but uh, actually listen. It it helps you in all aspects of life. (laughs) It's harder than than it sounds, right? It totally is. So to summarize, have a question and clearly state it when you're calling medical control. Don't multitask. This was life-changing for me when I heard that there was no such thing as multitasking and only task switching. I became much more efficient when I realized it actually saves time to take it one step at a time. Don't spike your dirty epidrip while you're calling into medical control. Next, have a shared mental model. And finally, hear back and read back. Moving on, we're going to switch gears and talk about the pre-hospital notification. Now, why is this so important? Some of your pre-hospital notification uh, calls aren't, you know, their routine. And I think that's the thing that makes some of these so challenging is because we get in the habit of being like, hey, you know, I'm coming with a whatever. And the hospital says, okay, you'll be in room, you know, 17 when you get here. But for those cases where you have your critical patient or, you know, there's something that is unique about your patient, that pre-notification of the hospital to mobilize the resources that you want um, can be really important. It's also important in a place like for example, Denver Health, where we have a pediatric portion of the emergency department and we have an adult portion, and you could be needing to go to one side or the other, but to provide the age of the patient so we can help figure out where the best place for that patient to go is can also be important. So the right resources are there where you end up. When we're talking about the pre-hospital notification, it's also important to stress what you're worried about. 
And an example of this is a call that I took in the hospital the other day, and it was uh, set up for a trauma patient. And they went all the way through. It was a scooter shocker <laughs> versus <laughs> versus <America's> <laughs> new trauma <laughs> epidemic <laughs> uh, versus a car. And he laid down his scooter, and I get this whole story that's you know he's alert, his GCS is fifteen, you know he's got like a arm injury or something like that. And then the vitals are given to me and his vitals are 80 over 50 with a pulse of 70 and a normal respiratory rate and things like that. And so I said, 80 over 50? (laughs) Because the story that had been presented to me beforehand didn't, wasn't congruent, wasn't, didn't match up with those vitals. And so, you know, after the fact, because they said, yes, 80 over 50, and then hung up. And I was like, <laughs> shoot. <Cool. Good> talk. <laughs> uh, you know, when they showed up at the hospital, you know, they had checked the pressure three times, and it was 80 over 50. And, you know, he was super diaphoretic at the time, and they were really worried about him. And those are things that, while it was really obvious to them in the back of the ambulance that they had checked this pressure multiple times, he kind of looked bad when he had his pressures of 80 over 50, that wasn't communicated well. And so uh, we ended up getting sort of all the resources there, assuming the patient had a pressure of 80 over 50. But it was it took a lot inside of me to sort of rally all of that level of concern when there wasn't sort of that matchup of, of the story. So just an example of how sort of that pre-notification can sort of change what the providers in the hospital are thinking as they expect that patient. So when we get to the hospital, why even give a handoff? I mean, honestly, the physician is just going to repeat every question we asked anyways. I've heard this before. (laughs) 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 To the point that sometimes when the medics are still standing there and I start to talk to the patient, I'm very aware of the fact that everyone's (laughs) thinking, but I just told you all that information. Um, But no, there's, there's lots of data out there that says that that handoff report is really important and communicates information that if it's not communicated in the handoff will otherwise be lost or will result in significant delay in that patient getting care for that aspect of it. So when you think about things like, you know, you've got a seizure patient and, you know, an example that comes to my mind is a particular seizure seizure patient that, you know, they ran on, they stopped the seizure, the patient got versed. They also found that the patient was like mildly hypoglycemic with glucose in the 40s, and then also had an EKG that was abnormal. In the handoff, one piece of that information, the abnormal EKG was lost. And so heard about the seizure, heard about the Versed that stopped the seizure, heard about the sort of low glucose that was also present. uh, But the abnormal EKG that was associated with it, that information was just not communicated or we didn't listen to it well. And so when we got the abnormal EKG 20 minutes later, (laughs) surprise, (laughs) we, uh, we probably delayed that patient's care. And so for all of those reasons, that handoff and pre-hospital providers giving the important information and us as in-hospital providers listening to that information and having a good way of keeping track of that is really, really important for our patient care. The American College of Emergency Physicians has a policy on who should be present for handoffs. Can you talk about this? So generally speaking, you can imagine that this is a 
topic that's really hard to actually study and prove that patient outcomes are better or different uh, when there's a good patient handoff that occurs or are better or different if there's a phys- physician that's at the bedside to get that handoff. But ASAP has come out and said that you know, in best practices, there is a physician that meets the ambulance that's there in addition to the other members of the team that will be taking care of that patient. So, you know, if it's not the physician, maybe it's the nurse practitioner or the PA plus the nurse and or a tech who are all going to be part of that care team. I think in a perfect world, they're all there and and hear that report. And certainly for those critical patients, I, I think that goes without saying and probably is more common than not in most places for really sick patients, right? We bring everybody in there so everybody hears the same story so we're all on the same page. That's probably not realistic for every single ambulance patient that comes in to most busy places. Um, But the more you can prioritize sort of getting who's going to be taking care of that patient there, I think the better. And I think, you know, it also falls down a little bit when it's, oh, the nurse, it's not really their room, but they're just going to cover for somebody. (laughs) Um, You can imagine just the Swiss cheese that happens when we don't get the people who are actually going to be taking care of the patient. This is not just a policy by the American College of Emergency Physicians. It's actually a joint policy between multiple bodies that includes the Emergency Nurses Association, the National Association of EMS Physicians, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians, and the National Association of State EMS Officials. We'll put a link to the policy in the show notes, but while the policy does not specifically state that a doctor has to be at the handoff, Ross, myself, the doctors who train us, and the doctors who train with us all believe that a physician should be there in most cases. And while it doesn't state that a physician has to be there, it does empower you to seek out any hospital provider to give handoff to there are times we should give a detailed handoff and there are times where really an abbreviated handoff is what is needed. Can you talk about the differences between these two incidents? Yeah. And I think it's hard because uh, pre-hospital, we certainly want to get credit and that's probably the wrong way to describe it, but you, you want to be able to say the things that you did for sick people. Um, and that's really important. And there's actually probably a time for that, regardless of which type of patient you bring in. But certainly for the patients where emergent interventions are going to be necessary, like your super sick trauma patient or a really sick medical patient that you know is going to, for whatever reason, maybe you didn't get a tube yet already, or maybe they're, they were peri-arrest for you and they're, they're quickly going towards arrest in the emergency department as well. Those cases need to be sort of those short, concise, give the very basic information because the reality is there's very few things that that are the next steps in the emergency department, right? Sort of irrespective of what your story is. If you have a penetrating trauma patient who lost pulses two minutes before you pulled into the ambulance bay, like they need a thoracotomy. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter if there were five shots fired or, <laughs> you know, if you got, uh, you know, you tried two times for an IV, but you ended up getting a 14 wherever. So sort of recognizing the the acuity and the the time-sensitive nature of your patient, which certainly all pre-hospital providers just innately have a really good sense of. If there are sort of complex medical patients that, you know, they're still going to be exactly as you see them in the next five minutes, um, where there's time to provide, especially, you know, the here's their medication list or the bag of meds that we found, you know, this is what they're 
home looked like and they can't go back there. The patient that comes to mind is the uh, one of our medics was telling me uh, this story and it was, you know, the patient they show up and is blue um, when they show up and is altered, um, who ends up getting, you know, a, a nasal tube and capno goes from, you know, 100 to, <laughs> to, to 50 in route, um, you know, and then the patient's looking a lot better, actually, um, being able to describe those interventions and, and whatnot that really help the receiving providers understand what their course has been, what their trajectory is, can be really important at that time too. Yeah, we talk about this in the intro in how to give a good handoff, that saying of know everything but say as little as absolutely is needed. Um, With that goes being open and allowing for questions at the end of the day um, because you've asked all the questions, you know all the answers, you've said what you think is important, but then being open to the physician asking questions for other things that he might think is important or things that he needs to rule out in his mind. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think that final piece of exchange of information can be really, really important. And I love the know everything, but communicating it in very small packages. But that exchange of information, I can even think about sort of our sick trauma patients, right, that come in and, you know, you give this awesome, very concise report that gives us all the information we need, but things have slowed down a little bit. And then to be able to step back and re-engage the pre-hospital providers and being available as a pre-hospital provider to be like, oh, yeah, like, I know things were really stressful. Yes, I said that, you know, these things were present or to be able to provide that extra bit of information and not have that be like a, oh, you didn't hear me say that or <laughs> or, or the in-hospital providers, you know, just sort of dismissing um, our pre-hospital providers as a resource because that's really what, what you are because you just spend a lot of time with a patient. Yeah, it's amazing when um, – and the system doesn't always allow for this if it's just blowing up and super busy. But it's amazing when we get a super sick trauma patient, the medics drop them off and we just go straight to work. We start doing temporizing measures and once we've assured our ABCs are intact, we've temporized, they're not going to die immediately on us. It's taking a step back and having the medic still in the corner of the room and stepping back back over to the medic and asking some of those more detailed, nuanced questions that might help us down the road about what they had on scene, different treatments they provided and stuff like that. It's super awesome when when our medics hang out in the corner of the room and we have the ability to ask them those questions once we've temporized a lot of things. So let's just bring it all back, summarize all of this that we just talked about. What are your keys to success when it comes to communication? Good communication habits go a really long ways in every single phase of EMS communication that we just talked about. And those good communication habits are things like removing your distractions, knowing that you can't multitask, repeating back critical information to make sure that everybody's on the same page, avoiding jargon and abbreviations sort of goes back to just that clarity of communication. And I'm calling to see if I can hang a dope drip. So there's no reason to hang a dope drip on this patient. The reason that she used diltiazem and that's... No, dopamine. I want dopamine. Oh, I thought you said dilt. And being an active listener on both sides of the phone, making sure that you're understanding what the person is saying to you rather than just thinking about what we're, what's happening next. Outside of sort of those good communication habits, I think uh, working together with your providers that are on the phone to help them gain that shared mental model and thinking about the words that we're using to develop that in an efficient 
and clear way, I think can go a long ways. And thinking about those objective things that we can use that everybody understands, right? Your vitals, your physical assessment, specifics to your patient history. And then finally, I think just assuming good intent on both sides goes a really, really long ways. If you seek first to understand what is going on and what the person you're talking to on the phone or during handoff or whatever is understanding, if you seek first to understand what their hesitation is or where the miscommunication is, I think that goes a really long ways rather than just assuming that they weren't listening or they don't care or something like that. I think that is one of the most important things is just assuming good intent on both sides. So to summarize, the three phases of EMS communication are medical direction, pre-arrival notification, and the ED handoff. These all have different risks and different ways that things can go wrong. With medical direction, you want to open with your question or request. Hey doc, I'm calling for 5 milligrams per kilogram of IM ketamine because things are getting unsafe on scene. With refusals, termination of resuscitation, and MCIs, you want to be aware that these are the highest risk areas for communication errors. Be on your A-game in these situations. Use simple language and practice the read-back principle religiously. Finally, multitasking is a myth. There only really is task switching. Focusing on one thing at a time, including your call to the hospital or to medical control, will set you up for success. Next is the pre-arrival notification phase. It's our job to be ready for you at the hospital. Most systems have trauma alerts or activations, STEMI or cardiac alerts, and stroke alerts. Unfortunately, a lot of the sick people you'll see in the field won't fall into one of these buckets, but you might need a similar level of resources on arrival. Use simple language that anyone can understand to convey what you need. Vital signs are a universal language, or shared mental model, if you will. When in doubt, say you're worried, and say you'll need help on arrival, and we'll be there for you. The next phase is the ED handoff. There's an entire ongoing segment about this topic. For this episode, we just want to emphasize that what you see and what you say is important. When the patient is super critically ill, stick to the principle of knowing everything but saying as little as possible so we can get to work and ask you questions as we go. If your system allows for it, try to linger in the resuscitation bay for a little bit so we can circle back with you and get more of your input once things are settled down. 